Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, this is not an FPL podcast. Instead, it's episode two of our Sunderland Till I Die Watch Along. If you want to partake but missed last week, definitely head back to the previous episode where we kicked this off. We start at about 18, 18 and a half minutes in uh, as per the advice in the blurb. Uh, just say thanks quickly for all the birthday wishes on Twitter. I had a very, very nice lockdown day, um, but yeah, it was still cool. Uh, still did a few bits and pieces, which uh, definitely made the day uh, a bit more special than every other day sitting around on my sofa in my flat uh, in lockdown. Uh, joined today by Nick and Stag, of course. Nick, first, you're right. Hey, mate. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I've been keeping busy in the lockdown. I'm doing some reading, just enjoying the hot weather in my garden, not in the park, and um, hanging out with my son as well. Um, so talking about family, my dad, famous for the hashtag dad watch section, has also been busy. Um, tweeted recently he's designed an Amazon Alexa football challenge quiz. And if you're interested, it's downloadable for free on Amazon Alexa. And you can also email him at footballchallengequiz at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions, improvements or feedback. Just to remind, of course, who we are. We are Who Got The Assist. You can find us on Twitter at WGT underscore FPL, uh, Tom at WGT underscore Nick, and at FPL Stag for Anthony. And we're also on Instagram, WGTA.FPL. So what's on the pod this week? Evening, lads. So as Tom mentioned already, we'll be looking at Series 2, Episode 2 of Sunderland Till I Die. This episode is called The Old Fashioned Way. There is a huge number of talking points for the series itself, but also looking at various issues in the world of football and how they're portrayed within a club and how they play out within a club. Uh, But first of all, we are going to, like the last few weeks, look at the world of football and the little bit of news that has been coming out in spite of the COVID pandemic that continues to uh, keep us all locked up in our houses. Yep, moment the COVID pandemic's over and we've got some FPL, we'll be back to FPL, but for now we're on the news and we're on Sunderland till I die. Uh, so let's start off with that news and it's, uh, yeah, it only came out today, didn't it? But there's a possible return for English football on the 6th of June that's being mooted. And the Premier League apparently are offering Wembley, St George's Park, uh, to try to figure out uh, how the hell they're going to end the season effectively. I think I saw something like 52 days, uh, or 50, was it 52, 54? Something like that is, is around the sort of estimate they think they need to fulfil the remaining fixtures. What's quite interesting is one article that was on Sports Illustrated uh, earlier this week, and it was talking about the idea of trying to play a league in a vacuum. So there's been talk of playing the Premier League games abroad or maybe within some sort of confined space in England. There's been talk, even Juan Mata said at MUTV just this week that he expects the Premier League to be played abroad. The UFC, which obviously is a 
a very different sport of football, but the UFC have been looking at hiring an island and keeping everyone there for the time. Major League Baseball looking at Arizona. The NBA have been looking at hotels in Las Vegas. You get the idea. The idea is effectively that players and the staff are all in quarantine for the whole duration of the league. They're shuttled to the matches. They train together. They're Everything basically is to avoid them having any exposure to the outside world. And this Sports Illustrated article basically popped the bubble, really, at the idea that it just can't work. So all of the people who are involved are going to have to have two weeks of isolation in advance. That's including people like broadcasters, the security, the household staff and the hotel who've been looking at people's rooms. And nobody can go in. Nobody can go out. They probably won't have families within this either. Testing. They would probably have to have tests every single day for every single person involved. And anybody listening to this in almost any country in the world they'll know that there are issues with dealing with testing backlogs as it is so this can't happen in the near future at the same time because of the risks of how everything would fall apart if one person tests positive they would still need to social distance within this quarantined bubble because if one gets it obviously the whole thing collapses and if someone needs medical treatment that's actually quite serious they have to actually leave the bubble so if they leave the bubble they have to quarantine for two weeks before they can re-enter the bubble and so (laughs) any medical staff that are to look after the players on a day-to-day basis will have to be in there you'll know that there's usually ambulances at every Premier League game for the whole entire duration of them to do emergency treatment etc they would have to be within the bubble and once they go outside the bubble those EMTs would no longer be available until they re-enter the bubble for a two-week period and If one person tests positive, boom, gone. You're going to have to stop everything for two weeks. And that could come just as easily as if like someone coughs on a lettuce that's being delivered. Vacuum, it's a difficult one. It definitely seems a bit of a far-fetched idea. I don't think I've ever heard the word bubble used in such a close proximity on the podcast before. I think that's just broken all sorts of records for frequency of the use of the term bubble. Um, But yeah, for sure. I mean, loads of people are saying, oh, it's going to be like an international tournament. You know, they go away for four weeks. What's the difference? Well, the difference is coronavirus, people, seriously. Um, Yeah, I I think that it does. I think we all kind of are grasping for that return of the sport, aren't we? Because it is going to be something that lifts the mood of the nation, lifts the mood of the world whatever if you are a sports fan but we've got to be realistic about it as well as being optimistic and yeah for the reasons that Anthony's just mentioned I just I can't see it coming back until I mean even that's it for June date that was being meant discussed recently even that for me still feels fanciful um but hey who knows basically um anthony put it very succinctly in, in regards to that article it's, it just seems very fanciful for me i mean we'd all love to see the football back on, on the 6th of june and all the premier league players and matches taking place but we just we just know that in reality this, this situation i feel like it's, it's not going to be resolved by the 6th of june unfortunately it could be you know months and months or even until um, everyone is sort of vaccinated until we can properly resume normal life again and normal life including footballs with, with crowds etc because you can say okay the premier league can finish and, and do do all this and you can have um, you know people shipping the lettuce as you put it um, so that the Premier League players are, are firmly isolated from real life and probably their families as well uh, but it, realistically it's, it's just not going to work that way it's, it's not it isn't plausible for us to, to ship off all the Premier League players off to a you know with all the staff and coaches off to some isolated country and, and play a, a series of sort of 40 matches or whatever off site and then you have the Premier League, what do you do about the Championship and, and League One and all the other leagues? It'll just put it completely out of kilter with all of the other English divisions that are, that are out there. 
this is not going to be instantaneously over, unfortunately. I feel like it could be another 12 months before we, we see everything back to normal. So, yeah, 6th of June. As much as I'd love to see the football back then, you know, it'd be brilliant. And this whole idea of playing offside and being isolated, I, I just can't see it working in practice, d- despite all the money that's with football. So, yeah, like two things on that. So we're quite a long way away, probably, from having a full stadiums full of fans shouting and spitting on each other, basically, for whole games. It's uh, it's going to be a while. And then maybe looking at more the, the world of football again for a second, and that is how maybe the clubs are viewing this. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was interviewed during the week on Sky with Gary Neville and somebody else. And Solskjaer was talking directly now to a question from Neville asking whether a club like Man United could exploit the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Solskjaer agreed effectively, saying that of of course the market is going to change, prices are going to fall and someone like United would be looking to pick up a bargain there. And actually during the week as well, one agent speaking to The Athletic said to directly quote, for Man United, Chelsea and Man City, buying players would be like businessmen buying businesses that are on the floor. They will see this as a way of maintaining their place at the top of the table for the next five years with no big transfer fees needed. Gives you an idea of probably where this is going. Ending up with, you know, you know kind of that fear of the Super League uh, sort of thing that has been mooted for so long that you've got like a, a group of uh, elite clubs that are going to soar away and have a European Super League. Um, but I mean, what, what it seems to be is that obviously the clubs who have means are going to be insulated to some extent um, to the, from this to, to the current sort of context. And you've got others who are going to be really susceptible to it. Uh, be interested to see how it all plays out, but yeah, uh, I think that kind of the news um, is going to probably become uh, more about when uh, we're going to see at least a return to training for clubs. I know, like the Liga have got a, have got something in place. Uh, the Bundesliga are training with groups of five, I think it is at the moment, um, and it'll be really interesting to see when that happens. But that's also a bit of a segue into the final bit of the news, which also coincides with the things that made made me laugh this week, which is Mourinho uh, taking the piss out of social distancing on Hadley Common, um, and the players he was with as well when he was training them in his iconic sort of lilac uh, training outfit were, were mind blowing. Like, what was he doing out there with the likes of Ndombele and and Sessignon and wow, Davins and Sanchez? What's he doing? Yeah. What, what these few players doing out there with him very bizarre well, i mean in the bella obviously was someone that they first spent a lot of money on i think it was around 53 million over the course of the summer and uh he was the player as you said that Mourinho despises he, he criticized heavily but he was criticizing basically his fitness um over the course of the season saying he was unfit couldn't complete 90 minutes didn't have the um you know, didn't have the energy essentially to complete a football match. And we all know, and I'm sure he's aware as well, that he was a fantastic footballer. That's why they spent so much money on him. He was highly praised before he came to Spurs and his season hasn't been hasn't been brilliant. But um, yeah, um, so the kind of what happened essentially is that the reports are that, um, you know, Mourinho, he'd already gone out for his exercise um, that day and then Mourinho came knocking on his door. Sanchez and Cessanon <laughs> happened to be in the park at the same time, but apparently they all live around that area anyway. So they were all kind of like, oh, they're, they're exercising as well. And this Ndombele um, has been, uh, it's, it's all reports, but he's apparently very unhappy about what happened when he had already exercised and, and then uh, Mourinho came and knocked on his door for this impromptu um, training session and there's been as I said a massive flout of social distancing rules um, it's caused rumbles within um, the senior staff and players so yeah um, not been not been a great week um, for Spurs or great couple of weeks um, from Spurs 
Yeah, like even the keypad, and I just like just imagine the imagery of this. That so, as you said, Nick, NW just finished his morning run um, at a virtual training session when Reno, without prior warning, rang his doorbell, saying into the intercom, "Quote, come down, we are going for a run." <laughs> yeah, and he said, and he was saying, "Oh, I'm really tired, boss. I can't, I can't go for a run." Reno's like, "This is why you're not in the team." It does it does just just seems like farcical, doesn't it? I mean, maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back with regards to the furlough as well. Like they had to because they they all broke social distancing. They then had to do something good to at least take their minds off it. But hey, um, yeah, another interesting week, I suppose, in our weird little lockdown world, our lockdown bubble, I suppose you put it, Stag. Oh, right, let's take a break there. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Let's move on to Simon's Fly Die then. And uh, it's season two, episode two, the old fashioned way. Uh, only 30 minutes after last week's 45, uh, but still an awful lot packed in here. And there are a few things I think that we're going to uh, kind of hint at, talk about, and you know, I guess in the style of the show, talk about a little bit, but leave them on simmer, I suppose, rather than bring them up to the boil for this particular episode. Um, but yeah, I guess you know, it opens up with a couple of slides, uh, this episode. that so states the salaries and divisions as the sending scale from Premier League to League One, uh, 64 grand a week uh, for the Premier League. Championship players have to make do on the 14 grand a week and the poor paupers in League One uh, just get by with 2k. And this is brought into stark relief by Jack Baldwin and his family. There's a little bit of uncertainty. He and his wife are saying, oh, we, we, you know, we, we didn't know where we were going to go before he signed for Sunderland. And he says, oh, you know, this is the pinnacle of my career. And she says, you know, the, the uncertainty is, is really, really strange. And I think that's where a lot of stress is in football. You just don't know what's going to happen next. And that's kind of how the show kicks off. And I guess it's kind of foreshadowing uh, the events of uh, well, the events of the series, but also the events of this particular episode too. On the river way, used to build the boats. Yeah, I think there's you, you get this huge parallel sort of between the likes of Jack Baldwin, who obviously um, sort of a, a journeyman league, league one type player who, who's um, you know on this much lower salary, and you know is life for these sort of players is, is very very different and far removed from the the likes of players we saw previously in Premier League experience you know obviously Jack Rodwell was the, the famous case from the previous series uh, but yeah um, Baldwin I think you, you, you kind of see um, a, a, a different type of footballer really not one who's you know flashy and full of cash but instead one that's sort of just lives in, in a modest house with you know family values and trying to get by raise two children. Yeah and it, it is quite tough as well with the I think it's he or his partner speaks about the fact that if he didn't if he signed his contract then of course he would be getting money but he didn't want to negotiate himself into a bad contract but if he didn't have a contract then he would have to go a certain number of weeks without money and just like any other person bills would have to be paid so he was describing his summer as a limbo land and he's talking about having a career with much more downs than ups so really as you say stark contrast to an awful lot of what we've seen so the story kind of moves through into the credits and then we turn into seeing Josh Maja scoring a deceptive finish is what they've said. And that deceptive finish from Josh Maja. I tell you, that's his trademark, isn't it? We're really starting to already see the groundwork of what Maja is, is to this Sunderland team, how many goals he scored, how important he is. And that is a thread that begins to run through the whole show. They love a foreshadow on this, don't they, really? Like, it just seems to be that they'll start to put things in place that act as kind of reference points as you go through the show. Like you know, in, in episode six, something will happen that calls back to episode one or episode two. That certainly happened a lot last year, you know, with uh, the importance of promotion back to the Premier League, which was spelt out 
writ large in episode one, come episode six, they made lots of references to that, not from a position of triumphalism like they thought it would be, but from a position of schadenfreude. And they love to build these threads, don't they, in something until I die. Mm-hmm. And I think what's also good there is how, you know, even the commentary that's on that magic goal against Burton that starts off the show is they're talking about how that, that finish has become his trademark finish. You know, he's scoring this goal, not just any goals, but just this particular goal so often kind of underlines is important there. Uh, it kind of moves on then and we, we get quite a few uh, talking heads uh, coming through with Sunderland second in the league. Charlie is delighted with the fact that Sunderland have picked up two wins uh, down south, as he puts it, um, against Wimbledon and Gillingham. It's quite funny. You see you see a happy happy Charlie Metham. He says six points stick it in the back pocket. It's very entertaining. Um, you know, a bit of cockiness there showing as well. But you see everyone, this is a ha- this is a good time for Sunderland after sort of time of such misery that we saw in the in the previous series. And um, previously, you know, Joyce to Chef, for instance, says everyone's happy and smiling, and you see George Honeyman who equates it to the gaffer. So it's good news. I mean, even Lee Catamore was scoring as well, a man who uh, managed six Premier League goals in two hundred and seventy one appearances. So uh, yeah, really, really good times, um, seemingly, um, in Sunderland. But then, uh, yeah, um, we, we move over, don't we? And uh, we start looking at the, the money and the savings. And, it, and it, even though it might be good on the football pitch at this particular moment in time, in, in the back room, there, there are problems. Yeah, there's a plentiful face palming. Uh, you've got a scene with uh, Stuart, who's the owner, uh, Neil Fox, one of the directors, and uh, uh, Richard Hill, uh, the, other, the other director, the head of football operations, sitting around talking about the business. And Fundamentally, this is what they think. It is the biggest mess of a business that that, that I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, he says the wage bill is thirty-four million pounds. A non-playing bill is twelve million pounds. They've only got fifteen point six million incoming. There's a thirty-five million pound difference. It's a very mismanaged sort of business, and this really crystallised in the cryo chamber. They invested whatever it was hundred thousand pounds plus on a cryo chamber. So I speak to the heads of medical. Who uses it? And they say, well, Martin Bain goes in there for his back occasionally. And I say, yeah, but what players use it? Oh, no one uses it. £100,000, cited as an example of that largesse, it's only used by Martin Bain for his back. Yeah, that, that was very entertaining. I think, obviously, um, we're sort of in an era now where every single Premier League club has, has a cryo chamber, you know. Um, it was cited as um, one of Leicester's uh, successes when in the Premier League season. They won, actually, Wes Morgan in the cryo chamber after every match was, was helping him um, stay positive and strong for every single match, keeping all those clean sheets. You know, even Jamie Vardy, for instance, got one in his house. So it was no surprise that, you know, a team of Sunderland from the Premier League would have a cryo chamber. But it's just this... The fact that they talk about its lack of use cost them £100,000, said that only, only Martin Bain was using it for his back. So that's a, quite a funny a little jab of the, um, the previous owner and the previous lack of organisation within, um, within the club that you know, they'd have these expenses that are just essentially going to waste. I guess that picks up another thread here, which is kind of the, the shambles of the business, which was hinted at a little bit in the first episode. Um, but it's really rammed home here and in the in the next scene as well. Dalton's going to be returned to a lot, but how does Stuart come across here, do we think? I, I think he does come across as uh, uh, the man that we're positioned behind. I think we are meant to feel you know, sympathy for him. He's the man picking up the pieces gamely after a period of mass neglect. 
I personally thought he came across quite well at this particular point. <clears throat> He's talking about how, while going through quite forensically all the different cuts, you know, we the cryo chamber is what sticks in the mind, but they were talking about the pitch maintenance costs that they've saved as well. And he's gone through very carefully every single detail there because he feels that he, as a director and as an owner of the club, has to work hard in every area because of the fans that come to the club aren't from necessarily well-off backgrounds. And so he feels that the fans need to be able to trust the people who are administrating the club and they want them to have that trust in them as they administer the club. And it's, I think it's a very respectable thing to aim for, would you not? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, none of the problems that are in place at this moment in time are Stuart's doing. He He's looking at what's gone on over the last five to 10 years at Sunderland. And he's thinking, you know, I've got a head of a job trying to fix this up and he's identifying the problem areas, the problems that lie within the club and, and then trying to see what they can do to, to get rid of these um, issues and save monies without, you know, adversely impacting the performances on the pitch as well. So, you know, he's doing his job at this particular moment in time. So I do have, um, I do have a lot of sympathy for him really when he's sort of like looking at these books thinking, what the hell is this? All the face palming definitely does uh, key into that, doesn't it? And even more so, the scene this is juxtaposed with, which is a Seaburn supporters club. Um, Charlie's in attendance, and there's a voiceover, and he's saying, you know, the welcome be very, very short. And this could swiftly turn hostile if, if we do get this wrong. Um, he's answering questions in front of the fans, and he says, you know, a lot of fans don't realise how bad financially the club was. I think Charlie speaks well here, especially when he's talking about the culture uh, which pervaded under the previous administration. The entire culture was, at the end of every month, what we do is we send a bill to a rich man in Florida and he signs a cheque and that's it. And he picks up the thread from Stuart, I suppose, in that regard. So they're aiming to be self-sustaining and we've learned a little bit more about Stuart later on as well in, in this context. But like, it feels to me like they're trying to use the fact that Stuart won't be bankrolling too much as the positive. So it becomes sort of our club rather than it being Stuart's club and the, the clear sort of differentiation between the last administration, which is just sugar daddy, to now we're all linked together, I think was a pretty plain here. And I think Charlie did do very, very well and um, kind of catching on to what we were talking about last week. Yeah, you can certainly see that from the fans' reactions and, and the fans that were interviewed afterwards. Um, you know, they, they were impressed by Charlie. They sort of saw the long-term plan and, and kind of understood it and agreed with it and, uh, you know, signed up to his concepts. I mean, when, when Charlie was talking, it actually reminded me of a book I recently read um, by Peter Hook um, about the Hacienda, which was entitled How Not to Run a Club. And from Charlie's um, version, it's almost how not to run a football club, really. Because as Charlie hi- highlighted, costs didn't matter. Losing money didn't matter. No one really cared if the club was losing money. And, and they were losing money fast. And what Charlie's essentially trying to do is, is turn this into a profit-making business. He's got a lot of work to do, but he's selling it well to the fans by saying, you know, it's about making this our club again and, and trying to you know, bring the fans into the equation here. What I like about them as well, though, is that they're, they're, we've talked about this a little bit, but they're very conscious of the fact that they're kind of invading still what is someone else's club. So he, he mentions how you know, he feels that he has fans trust right now on a short lease and that you know, he has to earn it from here, but that you know, at least the fans have kind of given them the benefit of the doubt to start. And as you guys say, though, it, it's, it's nice in one way, and I think it's definitely convincing, uh, as they put it, both Stuart and, uh, at this point, Charlie, where they talk about the fact that once your club is funded by a rich man, it is no longer a fans club. And Charlie has a great quote there that, you know, it's our club, we pay for it, you guys just administer it. And they kind of, that's their stated aim there. And it, it does, as you say, Nick, seem to be very well received. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting here as well is that the communication style that Charlie uses is still the same as how he was communicating within the club internally. But the style really works here when he's talking to fans because the way he articulates things is very, very clear and very, very concise. And I think he uses a lot of key terms to get his point across in a very nice way. And when he's speaking to staff, though, I think that definitely changes. And we, we saw that kind of in the previous episodes um, when he was talking to his marketing team. And I think we may well see this in later episodes too, um, that the contrast between using that communication style when speaking to the public or your, your kind of consumers and using that communication style amongst your staff are very, very different things. Because as he says, I'm not going to let, you know, the piss take party is going to stop now. And that pretty much informs what he's going to say here. But if you're speaking to your staff, I think that it, you have to frame that in a different way. So it's interesting to see that Charlie can do very well amongst one set of people. But as we'll see later, it doesn't quite work out. Amongst yeah, like that was something we looked at in the previous episode. The, the way he kind of spoke to the, remember when they were talking about the interest payments being seven million and none of the the staff that were in that meeting seemed to know yeah that the, you know it was kind of like you know this is part of the problem you're part of the problem was the way it kind of came across whereas in this meeting he's kind of he sits in and he's just like well look we've just inherited a shit show of a club to quote himself there and that how Sunderland are being shafted in deal after deal after deal I think that comes across very well to the fans because, of course, the fans did not like the previous owner and the previous regime in the end. So, of course, if you just you know stick the boot into them, it comes across quite well. He did, again, though, Charlie did throw the staff under the bus that he said you know, even the staff didn't comprehend how badly run it was. And you're kind of thinking, OK, this works outside, but inside. Yeah, that was another kind of one of those little links I spoke about earlier that does make you think about that that moment where he said where he said the very very open of episode one as you just said like oh none of you have read this none of you know this very bizarre and um, but it does seem like you know we don't really see that much of Charlie in this episode and it is a lot about Stuart uh, so the next scene cuts to Stuart in Oxfordshire he's playing football in his back garden you hear his backstory a little bit and um, Oxford United nice get mentioned you know his boyhood club used to see them. You see some sepia-tinged video footage, which I guess softens the blow of last podcast where we were kind of questioning that a little bit. Okay, so it's a little bit more sort of uh, reasonable now we get that. And uh, he says, you know, why he runs a football club, which I think is really, really cool. Um, He says that he's going to do it the old-fashioned way, which is kind of the he said it moment of, of this episode. So getting involved in Sunderland gave me a chance to run a football club in what I perceive was an old-fashioned way, whereby everyone would feel that they own their football club again. Like he's extremely evocative in the way he talks as well. And I think you're kind of getting the idea of how he wants to return to that club that, you know, like he said in the meetings and like like Charlie said in the Seaburn Supporters Club, is that he wants to have the fans club there. That he's evocatively talking about the terraces there. And it's it's such a normal thing he's talking about where everyone is standing in the stands at the smells of cigarettes and burgers on a Tuesday night. That's He, he just wants to create this warm feeling of his childhood almost. There's a Citizen Kane almost aspect to that. You do see his passion for football um, in the, in this little segment, and you, you kind of learn a little bit more of Stuart's backstory, as you said, Tom. Um, a little bit more about the character and and why he's in in the business. But you kind of contrast quite later when you see the conversation about dealing with agents, which is a much newer factor of um, football and something he's uh, anti compared to the old the old fashioned way of of just kind of dealing with the players and on the pitch, as you put it. 
Yeah, certainly. I think with Stuart, it's his relatability that makes him compelling as a as a protagonist, I suppose, in this uh, particular setting. I think he is just one of those people who we have the sympathy of, as I mentioned earlier on. I'm sure he's a capable guy. I'm sure he's kind of, uh, you know, his background is one thing, but the enthusiasm and I think the kind of the, un- the unassuming nature. I mean, obviously, he does have some preconceptions, but he does come across not as naive, but unassuming and just gen- a bit of a nice guy, like the kind of guy you feel like you could be or you could know. And that shepherds you towards liking him a little bit, doesn't it? And his explanation of why he bought a football club definitely is something which is going to resonate with lots of people. And I completely understand that viewpoint. Would we buy a football club if we could, guys? Would you Would you do it? Would love to. Um, but getting in a position to buy a football club is something Take all that to one side. But like, if, if say you could just, you know, you had the bank balance, all the other stuff was taken care of. You know, like in films, like everyone's rich, so they don't have to bother worrying about money. So if all that was taken to one side and it was just a football club, you were Stuart Donald um, or something like that, would you do it? I personally totally would. I think I've I've really enjoyed watching quite a few of these football documentaries that kind of chart what it's like to be on the the ownership or the management side of football clubs. I feel the uh, you, you'll say that they were financial doping. Maybe if you wanted to be give a contrary view, but the class of '92's uh, documentaries are out of their league and in a league of their own or whatever they were that they were called with both BBC and Sky. Looking at managing that club was really interesting too, and I think it's is this part of the problem with football club ownership is that everyone who's a fan thinks they can do it and they think they understand it but there's so there's a multitude of problems and difficulties that come with it that make it so hard yeah i mean i'd, I'd be um i'd agree with you there stag um i would probably give it a go if i had um, this infinite bank balance didn't have to worry about a job or anything like that and uh could dedicate all my energy to just just running a football club you know why not yeah i think it would be a, a very exciting thing to do as you said there's there's lots of other elements unfortunately you have to get involved with you mentioned the class of 92 i remember gary neville having to deal with the lo- local council over building the pitch and dealing with you know i think people were burning effigies of him virtually <laughs> He's having to deal with a lot of crap there, but apart from that, I think, yeah, why not be pretty good today? I think so. I feel like it would be a bit of a thankless task, though, because it's one thing to say, yeah, I own a football club, but the, the follow up that's kind of just occurred to me as we've been speaking about this is what sort of owner would you be if you were kind of the guardian angel, the the VC who was just coming in and doing whatever Short was doing? You're just signing checks, or are you the sort of, the sort of owner who's, you know, promoting this self-sustaining model or are you the sort of owner um you know uh, who's going to be taking it one step further like the greek owners all seem to be um, in the dressing room wielding guns and then threatening their managers like uh, how would you run a football club so i think if i was a vc limitless pots of gold who was just signing stuff up i think that's great I, i'd do that that'd be great fun uh, because you'd just be always be that guy who the fans would love you because just putting all the money in regardless you get good people around you would be able to sort things out if you're a self-sustaining guy i think it's easy to be a to be a figure of hatred like if it doesn't go very well and you're just like no we're sticking to the plan we're sticking to our philosophy of self-sustaining i think stan Kroenke maybe at arsenal like the fact that you're not putting money in because you're sticking to a strategy can easily be turned into a rod to beat you with and obviously, you don't want to be that owner who just like I don't know why I said Greek. I think I meant the Italian owners, you know, um, Cellino, that sort of owner who's just constantly interfering. Like no one wants that sort of owners. I wouldn't want to be that be that guy. I think I'd only want to do it if I had someone like in charge who was like a football person, and I was just signing the checks and like maybe an Abramovich with a Marina in front of him. Maybe maybe that's who I'd love to be. Razzan, I think if you watch the Leeds documentary, I, I, I kind of like his style of ownership, to be honest. He, he does have the element that he is trying to 
self-sustain the club obviously that's very hard in the championship when it's, it's all about them um, succeeding and gaining that promotion into the Premier League but he's also he also comes across very pragmatic doesn't interfere too much but in, you know pays attention enough that he would go to the matches and, and, and follow the club so uh, you know I think you can get that kind of level right I think obviously the class 92 as well you know they try and stay off as much as possible to keep a clear ownership of, of the club though obviously with, with them there's, there's a bit more bank rolling and a bit of a bit less um a bit less profit making but you know at the end of the day owning a football club's not meant to be about turning a profit and it's in this hypothetical scenario it's not about an investment which you're looking to make money from it's about investing in the club and, and looking at the long-term goals and ultimately you know achieving success with the club and that will require a certain amount of spending money but uh, you see, I would think that part of the trick is that you need to take a club that's maybe at a low ebb, but is large and has potential like Sunderland in this position, because you would think then that your little bit of money and a bit of stellar management would turn the tide. And I guess <laughs> it's easy to fall into the Stuart Donald trap. And maybe that's why even if you give this a bit of thought, you could still sympathize with them because that self-funding model is of course the more romantic view and maybe from a commercial sense it's probably the nicer view i think as an owner i would struggle to be any less involved than Stuart donald is put it that way i think i'd like to be at every game i'd like to be able to go into the terraces i'd like to try and be able to engage with fans and to be transparent and to be i guess almost like a face of it i certainly couldn't do an abramovich thing where you're just kind of just there in the box signing checks and nobody quite knows what you think or what you want from it but what i do like as well with fsg have a bit of an aspect of this but certainly the man who owns fc Mietland and brentford and a few other clubs if i remember correctly that he's all about trying to instill his own philosophy in terms of he's a professional gambler and so he uh, yeah, tries to yeah, use yeah. all sorts of different like statistical modeling techniques and emotional behavior modeling techniques to try and put together the perfect like the right type of squad with the right type of people in the most efficient way possible and emphasizing stuff like free kicks where there is a higher probability of scoring than open play and I like that idea of it and so bringing that sort of new thinking into a club which is much easier to say um, sitting here on a podcast on a random Monday night than it is to actually do in practice but that would be in my own romantic idea what I would like to do if I was. So Matthew Bentham sort of thing for you, um, Daniel Radzani for Nick, and I think I'd be Joe Lewis, wouldn't I, of Spurs, and just put Daniel Levy in front of me to be a lightning rod. I'd just sign my checks and get on with it and live on a lovely island in the Bahamas. All right, um, so back to the show, and we're back in training. Uh, Jack Ross speaks to the camera in his uh, lovely Scottish brogue um, on being a realist. You know, it's League One, it's difficult, um, but you know, cut to an interview with young starlet Josh Marger, who says, you know, there's good energy coming from him, and it's been very, very good, and... Uh, Jack Ross has been great with him and giving him that trust to, to keep him going forward. This is all interrupted by a slide that says that they need, need to tie the young players down before the January transfer window. Uh, this is a juxtapose of a scene where Stuart Donald is again uh, with his council of war, as it were, and he's saying, you know, he's, he's not signing agents, he's signing players, but dealing with agents, as Nick mentioned earlier, is becoming more and more annoying. They're looking at the young players that they've got hold of, and young players they don't. I mean, talk about Marja, obviously. Um, he scored lots of goals, as, as we've been told as, and shown. So he's the guy they really want to tie down. And Richard Hill says, you know, Marja's demurring. And it's difficult for players to recalibrate their expectations from Premier League to League One. Just Stuart Don saying that, you know, that really there's a lot of stuff going on. But he does say this. Josh has had a cracking offer. Yes. He'll sign that. We're hearing all sorts, but I mean, Tottenham have been to watch him. 
which I guess is meant to make you think that there's he still holds hope, I suppose. But that interest from other clubs, there's some real foreshadowing here, isn't it? And it seems those agents, uh, well, his agent at least, is uh, out circulating uh, Marge's name everywhere. And we, we hear about this more and more as the episode goes on. I think this is a good time to talk about agents because I think in some ways um, that is positioned as being the new sort of usurper force against the old-fashioned uh, pure way of doing football ownership or doing football as a business in general um so agents guys um obviously a big impact on Sunderland and we'll find out later on in this episode with uh, with Marja but just in general what do you think their impact is on football um how would you regulate them if at all so I think with agents, like broadly, I I don't think there'll be many people who will go against us when we say that they probably have a negative influence in football and that they perhaps at times prey on the vulnerability of younger players who they get onto their books and perhaps they have more motivations than just looking after their client, the agent. And I think that is no more epitomized really than what we've seen with Mino Raiola over the past few years. Uh, he was paid £41 million to transfer Paul Pogba from Juventus to Manchester United. Now, that might sound ridiculous in and of itself, but when you realise that he was paid by all three parties to that transfer, United, Juventus and Paul Pogba, you get an idea of the sort of thing that's going on. Juventus paid him to bid up the price. It wasn't a sell-on that they agreed there. Raiola was actually contracted by United to secure the transfer itself and Pogba's role or what he was paying for is quite obvious here. And the Guardian report that this idea where agents are working on both sides of deals is actually quite common and once the clubs kind of wave the idea that the agent needs to be impartial, it's, it's fine. This is just how it is. And that's obviously not an ideal scenario and just causes unnecessary expense in what is an already inflated monetarily sport. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's sickening, really. I think for many for many owners, really, in terms of the amount of money that the agents are picking up. So often, you, you look at the agent and you think, actually, are they acting in in the player's best interest, or are they acting in in their own interest, really? Because ultimately, they if they can broker the deal, broker the moves between the clubs, then they're going to get a a huge pay packet as as part of it. And you you see that later on in in the in the episode when we they talk a little bit more about Marge's agent and what his motivations might be in this particular scenario. But yeah, often they're kind of you know this hidden figure in football that we don't really know too much about. But you know they they wield so much power, especially if they can sort of get into sort of these young players, some of them sixteen, seventeen years old, and essentially come knocking on the door saying, "I'll be your agent. I can I can get you that dream move to Manchester United. I can do this. I can get you here. I can put your name out there." And you know essentially. Sell them a story about the fact that they might be earning hundred thousand pounds a week or something in, in a couple of years if, if they go with this particular individual. And uh, it is kind of it is a, you know it's it's a, it's a dark area of football and one that's really sort of grown over the past ten years as, as football has become um, more and more um, a commercial business as opposed to about the sport. And I think you, you see that in in sort of Stuart, you know, when he talks about the old fashioned way that he really sort of disagrees with this sort of element of of the football business. Yeah, certainly. I mean, in the secret footballer, they really he speaks about this a little bit, and it's still flabbergasts me that an agent can represent both his client and represent the club in the same transaction. That is absolutely mind blowing. That you can take a cut for both parts of the deal. Like it really does feel like the wild west of football in a lot of ways. That even these sort of basic things that you look at and think that can't be right, 
no one's looked at it or they've looked at it and there's been such resistance to the way things are going because these guys have got so much de facto power that like people don't want to mess with them because all of these players and are not are in their pockets effectively like ferguson was saying about uh, about pogba that um when he left juventus they had no chance because he they realized that raola had ingratiated himself with his family so anything that ferguson was saying was just being disregarded by pogba who was completely on the side of raola and on this subject um so fifa last year announced a number of rule changes so they wanted to limit uh, the fees agents can earn from clients transfers because i just mentioned you can represent both your client the buying club and the selling club in the same deal and um, so the new rules included limiting the amount an agent representing a selling club can receive i think it's 10 percent per transfer fee amongst a few other things and um, but this body i only learned existed a few months ago the association of football agents uh, hit back at the proposals and raola gave an impassioned speech in front of them uh, saying that it was their right to earn their money however they wanted uh, to cheers and uh, thunderous applause from the uh, from the agent body um, who all lined up for selfies with them afterwards these fifa edicts were described as a body blow from which many of our members will never recover um, but the bold facts are pretty crazy so FIFA uses an international transfer matching system to basically do transfers. That's how they're done, all the faxing and all this sort of thing. Figures from last December, December 2019, showed that $653 million, um, which is £500 million, was spent on commissions to agents and intermediaries alone um, last year. Um, Clubs in England, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal and Spain accounted for 80% of the total spend on commission. And Portuguese clubs spent half of their total transfer fee money on agents and intermediaries, which is absolutely crazy. And most of that went to Jorge Mendes and Gestapute. So the impact that these guys wield is, is absolutely immense. And the fact that their tentacles are into everything surely makes it very difficult to row back from because it is such a dark, furtive corner. They're so skilled in the dark arts. They've got so many players who ultimately wield the power, like it or not, in football at the moment, in their back pocket, that it's hard to see how they can row back. It's just it's such a dereliction of duty that we've got to this situation in the first place, isn't it? What's difficult about football and what makes agents so, you could just say nefarious, is that footballers often come from socioeconomically difficult backgrounds and they may not have uh, education a lot of the players sometimes they don't have come from a family that has high levels of education as well so these agents really have them because of course the riches that football offers and the life-changing sums that it offers for not just for the player but for the families involved as well it means that they can really prey on their vulnerabilities and of course the thing with football as well is that at 16 years old, there are thousands of players who still think they can make it at, let's say, a top five European league level. And what sometimes can make the difference is getting the training. It's getting to the clubs to actually get the trials and being taken on board. And what these agents offer is because they have, as Tom said, their tentacles and everything, is they offer contacts. They offer opportunities. Sometimes they might get a trial just because the agent is owed one back from some contact or something that they set up previously. And it's that soft influence that they have sometimes it's not just the hard cash Mm. that makes it so difficult to understand a and trying to deal with that to register it to audit that is just so difficult like fifa have already we've seen the clear issues they've had in trying to limit let's say using percentages of revenues with financial fair play that clubs will find a way around it and no more and also with bringing young players into clubs and paying parents they've clubs have found ways around that limitlessly it seems and so no more than that with anything that is done to regulate agents is going to be extremely difficult to police and to actually implement in the first place 
So it, it's uh, it, it's it's such a difficult issue, and I I think to use one of Nick's catchphrases, it's tough. It's probably in fact too tough to to deal with on this particular podcast. But I guess bringing it back to Sunday until I die, um, this scene and this scene is a. Uh, paired with a scene which is basically a sequence a montage to underline how important josh marger is to sunderland you know marger goal goal again uh, kevin phillips saying uh, he's massive for them another marger goal and um, the wise men say podcast say they like his arrogance uh, the afl matters uh, show uh, say that you know if the numbers had continued he'd have been the best finisher ever uh, Jack Ross was saying that he was going to, um, you know, he was hoping that he was going to stay, he'd develop him. Um, you know, in that season, um, Josh Marger had 15 goals in 24 appearances in League One. So, yeah, pretty damn decent. That, that scene kind of all seems to exist just to underline what's been said before and foreshadow what's to come as well. Um, that this guy is just the talisman. He's the guy who's putting the ball in the back of the net for them. And this is again kind of paired with a scene where they're at the Roker Report, another Sunderland podcast. Stuart Donald's in the studio. He's talking about contracts and the way contracts are set up. Again, that kind of theme of Sunderland being shafted really comes through. What we've done is put it completely the wrong way around so that actually Josh get in the first team in earnest, playing week in, week out, and their agents then see a value to them. So we're now forced to negotiate with the agent thinking, oh, I can make more money if he moves away than he can at Sunderland. So as an agent, I'm going to try and make more money by getting him a move. He says that they need to put a lot of money on the table to placate the agent. So, yeah, I guess continuing this theme of the agents being involved. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Again, what he says in, in the Roker report, it's almost foreshadowing that um, if, if Marja leaves the club, it's not necessarily Stuart Donald's fault. It, it's the um, fault, again, of the uh, the previous management and the previous administration because of the fact that, you know, these players have been put on these these three-year contracts and they haven't haven't built in any sort of one-year extension um, into them. You know, contracts are very complex things these days with footballers, but there wasn't any, comp- you know, evidence obviously in the third year if he starts playing at this point he's essentially saying it should have some form of clause to say if Marja plays 10 games or plays five games that he automatically gets a one-year extension because it's within that third year that you know that the eyes start to look at him and you know the media will start to get interested in this player and they've basically got to try and then renew all these players on on new full contracts just as just at that particular moment when they're starting to emerge as as real players so um yeah, it's very interesting what Stuart says there on the Roker Report podcast, kind of saying, look, <laughs> these players are on these really bad contracts. And uh, yeah, that, that comes up again later in, in the um, episode as well in regards to the contracts. What's interesting is that uh, Stuart looks at the fact that, okay, that the ghost of management past has kind of screwed them in terms of the contracts for those younger players, but also is the, the agent issue again crops up there. The fact that just the agents can make more money if Josh Maja moves club. And that's the bottom line of the issue. When you get to the final six months of contracts, as everybody knows, um, your value is, well, as low as it could possibly be. Um, so speak to foreign clubs, but not clubs in the same uh, same nation. Um, so, yeah, it just seems like, you know, all, this, all these sorts of comments about this agent being the sort of guy who has a history of moving his clients abroad definitely comes to the fore here. And it does just looks like, look like a, there's a lot of negligence in the past. I'm not even sure whether this is due to Ellis Short um, being, the, being the guy who's writing the checks. I think it just kind of speaks to other levels of incompetence that were around the club that this sort of thing has been allowed to happen as well. But you've got players who, you know, as Nick said, have just on these sorts of ropey deals that don't really protect the club and don't provide that sort of insurance policy. It just looks like, you know, 
ultimately there's nothing they can really do as Stuart says and the way that they've negotiated the contract just seems to be incredibly dumb so yeah it just seems like a bit of a tough gig all round for Stewie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, don't, I think it would be remiss to say that a lot of the previous problems within Sunderland were Ellis Short's fault. Ellis Short was essentially just giving the own the administration team a lot of money, you know, giving them plenty of money to spend. It's the fact that they spent it so poorly. There's probably a reason why Ellis Short said this this is a done deal. I'm, I'm not giving any more money to this club because I'm losing millions. I kind of understand from from that perspective, to be honest, in regards to. Yeah, Ellis Shaw, obviously he wanted to be a distant, you know, own from a distance and not get too heavily involved in the administration and just be the money man. But the money was spent so poorly and administrated so poorly as well. So yeah. segueing from uh, from spending money, uh, we now go back to uh, Luke 9, uh, a jovial character who was introduced to us in the last uh, last episode, um, who uh, you know, genuinely seems overawed as we as we mentioned by the likes of uh, Brian Oviedo and Aidan McGeady. So he's hanging out with Josh Maggio. You know, he says Maggio's having a tough time. And he's talking about himself as well about how he's trying too hard. Um, Jack Ross gave him the fantastic advice to remember the player you are. A.K. He watched the Lion King and seen remember who you are and thought, yeah, I'll tell the player that he's definitely dumb enough to believe it. And and uh, 09 saying, oh, you know, it really just spoke to me. Those them simple words just just made, you know, made everything right. Yeah. Anyway, we move to a game. Uh, the commentator is mispronouncing 09's name all the way through. God, I was outraged. He was calling him O'Neill and uh, can't believe it. Um, but yeah, we have this sort of fantastic dramatic payoff when he scores a goal. Magic scores again and again. And uh, there's kind of the I think it kind of moves between lots of football matches, but you kind of see No Nine and Madger celebrating because Madger's just scored his tenth goal of the season. You got number ten. Madger doesn't seem to realise that he'd scored his tenth goal of the season whatsoever. And Probably doesn't is care. Definitely, he? yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm going to score ten in league and at the end of this year is all he's doing. Yeah, on the plane at this point. Oh, spoilers! <laughs> you can you can see the happiness of um, Luke Nine. Almost, he's kind of an innocent, quite a likable kid, but they actually. Um, show uh, Stuart Donald in the crowd and, and he's got like a face of thunder I don't know if that was that particular moment they choose to use or if that was like later in the game they just did it for dramatic effects but it shows that whilst everything's happy on the pitch 09 and Marjorie are smiling and celebrating together all is not well in reality when it comes to uh, Josh Marger. Yeah, I mean, the season does like really progress. Like, you kind of have gone from August all the way to October, November by this point. And it's incredible how spliced up football matches kind of put in to highlight the point and move time on. Really works as a device to show that sort of passing of time, the chronology, because the next thing, it's November and they're sitting in a pub, uh, the management team, and the Richard Hill, the I think head of football operations says, you know, the limit's been reached and uh, Josh Marge's agent is is basically taking them all for a ride. If he goes overseas, he says the agent will get a million pounds. Stuart says, oh, the family trusts the agent, uh, speaking about you know what we were talking about earlier. And Richard Hill says, you know, it's nothing to do with Marge, it's all about the agent. Why would you want to leave? Uh, they all ask. You know, Stuart Donald's saying, you know, football's changed, he's negotiating with a lot, with a lot of people. And uh, he also says it doesn't look very good for them if, if Marge does go. The final scene is Marja. Um, he's in the interview and uh, he's being asked the transfer speculation. And uh, he says, oh, that's interesting. And he just looks non-committal, doesn't he? He's uh, smiling wryly and he just looks so dodgy, like so sketchy. Like, you know, he's got all that body language, you know, his hands pat in the seat. Looks every inch the untrustworthy man. He could not sound more non-committal when he said how he's feeling. I'm 
here right now. So that's it. That's football for you. And I guess the final talking point for this week's podcast is 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 on Josh Marger. Like not the the final final talk about Josh Marger, which I think is going to come next week. Spoiler, it was stack spoiler earlier. Um, but dramatically here, I think he's been portrayed as the antagonist. He's the, the kind of the enemy, the embodiment of this sort of new invading force in football. But like, is it fair on him? In some ways, I think juices really do stitch him up, don't they, through representing him this way? I think at the end of the day, he, he, I still feel he is he's relatively sympathetic character um he, you are talking about an 18 year old clip and you saw the clip before where they say it's not about him it's about the agent and at the end of the day the, the agent is selling him the dream of of more money he's you have to look at his position he was with Sunderland as an academy player when he was in the Premier League and they've since suffered two relegations he's now broken through into the first team he scored 10 goals in whatever you know 13 14 games he, he's on fire performing well and there are rumors of and I'm sure his agents in his ears rumors of the likes of Spurs and other clubs interested in him and um, obviously um, potential for an overseas move and, and the, these moves will include a massive pay um, pay for him and they've also factored in the fact that I think as Richard said earlier um, that you know Marjo players talk he'll be aware of the amount of money that the likes of the Catamol for instance is going to be earning at this particular moment in time for the club and what's being offered to him as you as we saw at the beginning of the episode that you know, League One players only earn 2K a week. You know, you could be, could be talking a tiny salary and potentially, you know, a, a four-year contract or something like that, which he's, he's not going to be interested in if he's, his contract's running out and there's a potential that he could earn, you know, 10 times that in a, in a Premier League club or a um, you know, League One club. So understand and at this stage his his future is very much up in the air so you can you can understand why he's going to be non-committal he's not going to say to the documentary makers oh i love the club i'm going to be here for the next five years i'm going to you know something means everything to me when if that's not actually the reality and he he knows in his hearts of hearts he's going to be moving but he's also not going to say the opposite is he for me he reminds me in that at the end of a a Shakespearean Jesus. character giving a soliloquy. I'm here right now, so that's it. That's football for you. That's me. You know, with the creepy hand yeah. gesture thing in the back. You know, they show so him kind strange. of touching the pad that he's sitting on as well. Oh, it plays off so awfully. And I think when you consider where that episode had started with, you know, all these uh, media types and uh, Joyce in the kitchen talking about how all the lads love to be at the club and it's so great that everything's kind of coming back together. And then you've got him at the end kind of sinisterly tapping away as he plots his way out of the club. It, it is kind of difficult. And I think, as Tom says, he has been stitched up a bit. And as Nick says, there is good reason why a player like him would want to move to make more money. You've, you're a footballer. You've got 17 years of, of a career if you do really, really, really well for yourself. And you kind of need to maximize your earnings potential in that time. Absolutely. I think Nick's got it right that I think he's in a, he's in a lose-lose situation because anything he says, then put next to what he actually does, which is going to Bordeaux, um, makes him is going to make him look bad whatever the case like if he had as nick said said oh yeah i love the car i'm not going anywhere he would have looked terrible as it stands he's been non-committal he can't say yeah I'm on the way out because i mean would you would you do that if you were that guy i don't think he would either but like, either way your negotiations are going to be you will be doing yourself out of your deal probably 
in yeah. terms of like, oh, the other clubs know that you're definitely leaving and that you've abandoned your chance of signing a contract with the club you're at. So your best thing to do, and the agent probably would have told him, is just stay quiet, say nothing, don't mess this up. I've, I'll handle it. And Josh Maggio is very happy to just say, my agent handles this. I don't uh, know. I don't read the paper. I concentrate on football. Yeah. Cliche, cliche, cliche. Exactly. But I, I still think the way that he was, he is put up and the way that they do do it um, does cast him as that proxy for the the bratty, you know, mercenary culture that they're trying to say that football has become, the antithesis to Stuart's sort of utopian dream of the old-fashioned way. The final cut, like, it just reminded me, I was saying to you guys earlier, like, L.A. Noir, that computer game, that you're a detective, you know, it's an in- interrogation to speak into witnesses and suspects and sort of things, and they'd all be writhing, you know, making little actions with their face and things like that to influence your decision. You could, you know, say, oh, yeah, he's telling the truth, it's a lie, or you can use doubt and everything that Marge says and and everything he, he kind of looks like, you know, tapping the table, as you said, just screams doubt here. It just it just doesn't look very good for him. It is a lose-lose situation, but just look at, if you if you do, well, obviously do take have a beer or something beforehand, but look up Marjorie as a snake on social media. Like, the guy has an absolute hammering uh, because of this, and arguably the programme makers will say that there's no way we could have done it any differently. But I just, I do think that it, it, it was a little bit unwarranted, um, and it did make him look worse than he actually was like as nick said probably the agent is the person who is the uh, the dark villain he's just a bit of a, a bit of a front man a bit of a lightning rod for the criticism that you receive i mean there's sort of parallels i guess um in the last series um with uh lewis graben who um, i think left in the january window after being sort of their leading scorer um in the championship and now you've got uh, it with josh madger and and you just see you know you saw it with the sunderland fans when graben scored against them you know they're hurling abuse with them they're hurling abuse at um I think it was uh, Darren Bent as well, because there was another former Sunderland player that was, you know, supposedly a snake for leaving. So um, it's, it's, it seems to be a common theme there, really, in terms of trying to hang on to the forwards. But ultimately, as, as I said, you know, it's, it's an 18-year-old boy and probably what they're offering in terms of cash, because they're now a League One club, it's completely different to what he would have been offered if he was a Premier League player or even a Championship player at this particular moment in time and coming through um, the main squad. So... You know, I, I personally do sympathise with, with the player in terms of the decisions that he's he's got to make of his own career path, which may be very different to Sunderland's, unfortunately, at this stage. I think just with, with so many of these things in football, it's just so easy for us to kind of sit on the terrace or in a webcam at home and looking at it from afar and to think wow how selfish he is wow this is the wrong thing to do but once you stick yourself in his shoes or any player's shoes in an awful lot of situations that don't involve Kyle Walker you're you're going to feel sorry for him and like players have huge amount of external pressure on them Luke 9 actually talks about that in the episode itself where people are always advising them what to do oh you should totally be doing this or you need to consider that for an 18 year old kid or even for someone who's 30 years old who has only existed in the world of football that's that's difficult to deal with and when you try to empathize with a player I think often you're going to end up just feeling sorry for them yeah I mean ultimately he's a young guy doesn't really know any better like we all well, apart from you, Stag, but those people are watching it with the benefit of age slash experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess you got to try to put yourself in his shoes and empathise if you are the sort of person who's saying, oh, what a snake, what a snake. Because the reality is that he's just going to make the best decision for himself. And you would too if you were him. I don't think that you'd be kind of thinking, yeah, I'm just going to stay a Sunderland out of 
I don't know, out of loyalty or something like that. It just seems like kind of blind loyalty or something like that. If you were doing that, would you always want to best yourself, right? It makes but, but, but Josh Madger has probably seen that. Like, what what would he be loyal to? Like he saw he saw the players yeah. a year earlier. All of them have their heads chewed off by the fans. You know, it's yeah. like he knows that it's a fickle thing at the best of times. It seems to be just given the boom bust cycle Sunderland have been, in, it seems particularly fickle there, and the frustration is even mm. extremely difficult to deal with I would imagine it's a hard to escape it's the one club in the city etc you can kind of see why the easier option and the more lucrative option was just to go yeah it's, it's not like um, he's actually from the area as well like um, George Hayman he's, he's from Lewisham um, in London so you know he, he's moved up up north far away potentially from where the rest of his family are and you know he, it's, it's not it's not a city that he's sort of grown up with and you know he, he kind of expected that he wouldn't be spending his entire career in Sunderland because essentially as, as he kind of like he, he owes he owes them nothing really you know he's, he's been there for a couple of years and they've brought him through the youth academy but um, he's, um, he's got his whole career ahead of him hasn't he if he had one year on his deal let's say in Stuart Donald's ideal world come the next summer whether they got promoted or not thanks to his goals they'd have probably been looking to force him out of the club to get a fee that's you know the bottom yep. line is that like he left now, but you know if the shoe was on a different foot, he'd probably still be outside that club now in 2020. Well, he hasn't left. He hasn't left yet in this particular little bubble. Uh, just to use that word one more time in this podcast uh, of of the show. Um, but yeah, no, it, as the scene closes on him uh, looking decidedly shifty, um, it fades to black and we get to the end credits. So, did we like this episode, gents? In a nutshell, yeah. I I think. Again, what I like about Sunderland Until I Die is the way that it gives us an insight into the problems and the developments of in football, using one club as just a proxy to tell that story and using different characters within the club to obviously help help bring us along. And yet again, I think especially with the agency problem that we've discussed so much in this pod, they've done a brilliant job on this one. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, another good episode of the uh, series. Um, you know, a lot of talking points, lots of discussions uh, that we've had. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to the next part. It's got me hooked and, you know, it left on that sort of, you know, cliffhanger moment, as you'd put it, for a, for a TV drama with sort of Josh Madger sitting there, you know, looking, um, you know, very unsteady, which kind of, you know, my wife was asking me questions. Oh, what's going to happen next with, with Josh Madger? And I said, well, we've got to wait and see. So, you know, plenty of talking points for watchers certainly I like, I like the way they can pack it all in um for me though this episode really did feel like a bridging episode it was half an hour and i felt like this they were using an opportunity to set a lot of reference points for our memories so later on we go yeah i remember that was important because he did this and i remember that was important because they said this and um, it felt like a collage of lots of snippets of things to me while they're moving on the sort of narrative it felt like nothing really happened at the club in this period so they were kind of trying to draw out some of the themes which are going to then be really untangled later on um, didn't read too much of Charlie either um, and I think that it was really kind of narrowly kind of focused on Stuart Donald and his vision for the club and I think it did do a good job of setting as I've said a few times Stuart as the protagonist and Josh Marger and Agents as the antagonist and I like that sort of uh, conflict that's set up for the next episode to come um, so it's a pride, passion and loyalty is the next one so I'm guessing we can infer what happens uh, in the next episode but yeah there we go um, yeah I, I thought it was quite good just to say we are of course who got the assist you'll find the twitter account for tom at wgta underscore fpl nick is at wgta underscore nick and i'm at fpl stag we're also over on instagram at wgta dot fpl 
we will indeed as tom said be back next week cool all right well um as i mentioned we'll be back uh, next time uh, to talk about uh, season two episode three a 45 minutes or a long, much longer episode than this one uh, pride passion and loyalty we hope this issue watch something slide die better thanks for listening and being a loyal listener during this fallow period stay safe all cheers guys see ya oh it's a goal who got the assist who got the assist Social Podcast Network.